Good evening, folks. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. Tonight we're going to continue our study through this exciting book and we'll be picking up here in chapter 6 where we left off two Sundays ago, Sunday Sunday week ago. Um, and it's important for us, I think, to, to recalibrate and remember where we are in this story. There's parts of 1 Samuel that we're familiar with, and there's parts that we're not as familiar with. And, you know, what we've seen so far, the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, which is one book, we see how, we see a record of God's interactions and dealings with his covenant people, Israel. That's, that's the you know, big, big picture of what is going on. And, it's, and this book is important for us to take seriously because it reveals what our God is like. It reveals what he is like. And if we want to know him, and I hope that you do, if we want to know God and if we want to have a close relationship with him, then we have to know him. We have to understand his character and to be familiar with his ways. And so this book is a, a treasure to us because it shows us how God interacts and deals with his people, especially sinful people. Because I don't know about you, when I, when I say grace, grace, marvelous grace, man, I mean that. Because I need grace in my life. I'm a sinner. And so I'm thankful to see how God deals with sinners, with mercy and grace. You know, one of the many reasons that Bible reading is, or constant Bible reading is so important in the Christian life is not simply or primarily that we would pick up on some new information, or that we would learn some new Bible trivia, or that we'd pick up, you know, a cool tidbit, right? The point is that we need to have our minds renewed and stretched and changed. We need our views of God to be tweaked and to be perfected, even if it's only a little bit, which it isn't. You see, one of the things we might be prone to forgetting is that each one of us has formulated in our mind a view of God. We have views about God. Each of us has his own conception of what God is like. And if we were really honest and if we were able to get it out all on paper, none of us would really have exactly the same view. If we could see, each of us has his own conception of what God is like, the substance of his character, the way that he acts, things that he loves, and things that he hates. We each have some view of how we expect him to act in specific situations or under certain circumstances. But the question that is really important is, how accurate are our views? Are we, are we right and what finite sinner here, what, what finite sinner among us would dare say, we know God perfectly? Not me, right? Not me. So, so far, I think for Samuel, one of the things that it's done for us is that it stretched our, our view of God. We have seen the mercy of God, which we're probably more familiar with. The, the God who hears the cries of his, hervent, his, of his servant Hannah. The God who is faithful to his people in spite of their sin. Yes, we've seen the mercy of God. But we've also seen the severity and the wrath of God. 
We've seen a God who destroyed his own priests because of their wickedness. We've seen a God who defeated his own people with the hand of the Philistines. And then the same God turned around and then struck, we'll see tonight, the Philistines with a plague for their own idolatry. It's the very same God who, as we'll see tonight and and in the coming weeks, who then, when he comes back into Israel, he wreaks more havoc among his people. And you see, all of this reminds us of a point that the Bible goes way out of its way to make for us. That just as God is good to those who trust him and to those who obey his word, so he is terrible to those who do not. Just as God is good to those who trust him and obey his word, God is terrible to those who do not. 1 Samuel reminds us that God is a God of mercy, yes, and that God is a God of wrath, And our hearts need to be reminded of both truths. And we should worship God in view of both truths. We should worship God for his mercy. And we should worship God for his wrath. His holy wrath. But 1 Samuel is not a book only about God. 1 Samuel also teaches us a great deal about the nature of mankind. As the Bible does constantly. We have seen so far that humans, that we humans are prone to forgetting God. We've seen that we are prone to worship idols. We've seen that we are tempted to use God for our own purposes. We've seen that even God's people, in spite of all sorts of religious activity, even the people who identify with God could actually still be far away from Him. What a terrifying thought. And tonight, as we come to chapter 6, we will continue to see lessons about the nature of God and about the nature of mankind. Now, where we left off last week, we saw how God had dealt two major blows at the hands of the Philistines to his people Israel. Thirty plus thousand soldiers were killed, along with the two priests in Israel, Hophni and Phinehas. And we saw the worst part, the most scary part for the people of Israel is that the Ark of God, the very, which symbolized in a very literal way the throne and the presence and the blessing of God, it was captured. It was tragically captured by the Philistines. You remember the response of Eli? You remember the response of several who died when they heard the news? The glory of God has departed Israel. And it was a bigger, it was much more than losing a religious relic, right? It was, it was a big deal. The author of Samuel made it very clear to us that this was the departure of God himself, leaving his people because of their sin. And so in chapter 5, the story picks up with the ark of God wreaking havoc in the land of the Philistines. And so what was happening is that, you know, the Philistines took the ark, this, this, tro- this trophy, this trophy of war, and they set it up, you know, in the house next to, you know, one of their favorite gods, Dagon. But when they woke up the next morning, their little god had toppled over, and he was bowing down to the ark. How funny. And uh, so they set him back up, because that's what you do when your god falls over. And so the next morning, they wake up, and Dagon had fallen over again. And this time, he lost his head, and he lost his hands. I love how the text says specifically, they didn't break off. They were cut off. Um, Which is humorous to us at first, and then it's a vivid reminder to us. Yahweh has no rivals. 
He has no true rivals, and he will not tolerate other gods before him. But this is a God, this God of Samuel. He is a God who does more than toy with the idols of the Philistines. He goes beyond that. He actually goes on, he devastates their idols, and then he devastates their land, and he devastates their bodies. The text says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the Philistines, and we read that he afflicted them with horrible, deadly tumors. And then the text gives us several clues that should help us think back to God's dealings with the Egyptians, how God brought plagues and devastated the Egyptians. And so the Philistines, they eventually said, just like Pharaoh eventually said, we, we don't want anything to do with this God. We can't handle this God. And so they couldn't figure out what to do with the ark, so they sent it on to another city, right? They sent it to their neighbors. Hey, <laughs> look what's coming into town. Down. You'll love it. It's great, right? And, and the same thing happened. It, the same thing happened. More plagues, more death. It is, as, it is as if the Lord was not just content to dismember the idols of the Philistines, but he was on a victory march through their land and striking awe and fear into their hearts. So this is where we pick up the story. Now, I'm going to summarize the first 12 verses of chapter 6 for us. I don't normally like to do that, but uh, the, the way the text works, and I, th- I think it works for us tonight for the sake of time. But what we see is that, and you can kind of glance through it as I'm describing this, but after, after seven months of the ark of God being in the land of the Philistines, they finally had had enough. But instead of repenting, they decided to send the ark back to Israel, right? They consulted with their pagan priests and they said, you know, let's, let's send this thing along. And it's interesting because they knew enough about the glory of God to know that they couldn't send back the ark empty-handed. They, they knew on some level that they had wronged a, a holy God. So they concocted their version of the guilt offering and they put together, they made five golden tumors, Hmm. How, how do they pick which one to, I don't know. They made five, five golden tumors and then five golden mice, which we think was probably one for each of the Philistine cities. Remember, there are five Philistine cities. And they put these, they put these relics into the ark, and then they put the ark on, on a cart and put two cow, calving cows calving cows, right? Two cows that had just had calves. Somebody in here knows a better term for that, and I don't, but you're, I, think you, I think you're with me. And the reason that's important is because the Philistines were still superstitious. They wanted to figure out if what had happened to them, if all the death and all the plagues, if that was a coincidence or if it was really the hand of God. And so what they did is they locked up the calves, right? They locked up the baby cows for, me, for us city boys, They locked them up and then they turned the cows loose and they watched which way they would go. Now, any cow, I'm told, that has just had a calf is not going to want to be separated from, from the calf. And so it's interesting because we see these cows pulling the ark of God. They don't go to their calves, but instead they take the ark back into the land of Israel. And the text says that they were lowing as they went. And so the ark comes back to Israel and everyone lived happily ever after, right? New. No. 
not right. And so now let's pick up reading here in verse 13. Okay, so 1 Samuel 6, we'll read starting in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. When the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. I'll keep reading here. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word tonight. And we should be trembling. So, Father, if we have read your word and we are careless, if we are flippant, if this is not a big deal to us, I pray that you would grab the attention of our hearts. Father, we don't want your hand to come heavy down upon us. So, Father, I pray that tonight, that as we consider this text, that as we read of how you interacted with your people and how you dealt with the Philistines and how you struck 70 dead, Father, teach us that we would not be like them, that we would please you. I pray, Father, that tonight, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We want to hear. We need to hear. We must hear from you. So, would you do that? Would you work in our hearts by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. As you may recall, and hopefully you noticed as we were reading, verse 20 is really, I think, the key question in the last two chapters, in chapters 5 and 6. The question is, who can stand before this God? Now, we as the people of God should be supremely concerned with this. We as his people have, in some way, we've seen him and we find him beautiful. That's what it means to be a Christian, to, to see and to love and to glorify God. We want to be with him. We want to be like him. So this question, I pray, will stay ringing in our ears tonight. Who can stand before this God? 
Now we've already seen that idols, right? Idols, rival, rival gods can't stand before him. And we've already seen in chapter 5 that idolaters can't stand before him. God destroys and brings judgment on them. And tonight we'll see that without outside help, even the people of God can't stand before him. In the past, we've called this the problem of God. The problem of God, or you could say the problem of the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, we are taught that all people, all people are aware of this problem. Romans says that on some level, God has revealed himself, specifically his wrath. He has revealed himself to mankind. He has revealed that he exists, that he is powerful, and that he is angry about sin. So no matter where people live, on some level, they understand or they know or have been revealed to those truths. But in spite of this, even though mankind knows plain facts about God... The Bible says that we on a whole have refused to honor God, that we've refused to give him praise. And instead, the text says, Romans 1, we suppress the truth. What a a scary phrase, that mankind suppresses the truth. That means that mankind knows something about God. We just don't like it. We just don't like it. So we suppress it. We have to figure out, okay, we don't like this God, so how do we live with this truth? How do we live? So humans, it seems, have been, since the beginning of time, very creative at coming up with ways to suppress the truth, to relieve the guilt, to free themselves from the problem of the wrath of God. One of the things I think mankind does is we pretend that he's not there. And that he's not angry about our sin. And that, you know, everything will just work out in the end. Think about the dialogue that you hear in the culture. Think about what your lost friends may say. Think about what we hear uh, secular humanists say. and, And the new atheist group say. You see, what's interesting about this though is that this is a problem in the secular world, yes. But it's also a problem in the religious world. And I would say it's even a problem to some degree in the evangelical world. I think that one of the key themes about this text, I've struggled with this for a while, one of the key things about this text in 5 and 6 is that we see methods that mankind uses to try to deal with the problem of God. We see bad methods that mankind uses to try to deal with the problem of God. You see, there's two extremes here. At one extreme, we see some people who want to just ignore him altogether, right? They want to write him off and pretend or declare or put on the side of a bus that he doesn't, that he just doesn't exist. But then at the other end of the spectrum, right, closer to home, is the subtle danger of dreaming up a different God, of creating in our own mental images a God that doesn't exactly exist. How often have you heard someone say something like this? I don't like to think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. Is that the God of the Bible? That's a different God. There are parts of God that are hard to stomach. And so I think all of us in different degrees try to smooth over the rough edges 
But what we really end up doing is we practice speculative theology. Or you could even say we take and make little versions of God that are similar to him, but they are not him. We end up creating and then worshiping a God that is made in our image instead of recognizing that we are man made in his image. Friends, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Our vision of God matters. Our vision of God matters. Could it be that our worship is so dull and so dry because the God we worship is small? Could it be that we've created some other variety of God and he's not that interesting because he's not the actual God? He's just made in our own image and so we're not that impressed? Could it be Could it be that we're so complacent about the sin that remains in our lives because we've refashioned the God of the Bible into some tame little buddy, like an insurance agent that keeps us out of hell, or like a Santa Claus that gives us stuff we ask for, or a guardian angel that gets us out of tough binds when we find ourselves stuck? Friends, what we believe about God matters. And our vision of Him will directly affect our worship of Him. Now, we may not go so far to put God up in a house with, you know, Dagon or even Charles Darwin. But we're all guilty, I think, of thinking thoughts that are not worthy of Him. We all are prone and we all sin by thinking thoughts of God that are not true. Seeing God as He is... Not as we imagine him to be. Seeing God as he is, is the beginning of true worship. Otherwise, you're worshiping something else. Seeing God as he is, is the beginning of true worship. So let's think for a little bit about some of the ways that mankind is tempted, or especially the Philistines and Israelites, created God in their own image or tried to deal with them. One of the things that we do, as I've already said, is what the Philistines did, is we tried to ignore him. We tried to ignore him. Now, there's an old myth. Um, I just realized it was a myth today. Uh, there's an old myth that's been around for ages that when ostriches, ostriches, ostrich, ostriches, sense that they're in danger, right? If there's a lion around or a jackal around, what do they do? They put their head in the sand and they pretend he's not there, right? This, uh, they, they figure that, you know, if I can't see the cheetah, and if I think really hard that, you know, about something else, if I think happy thoughts, the cheetah is not there. The leopard is not there, right? Sticking your head in the sand. Well, that's what the Philistines did, right? They, in verse 2, we read that they couldn't handle the glory or the presence of God. And so they said, let's get rid of him. So what they do? They sent him away. How many people in our culture, can you tell very clearly, just want to send him away? We want to send him away. They don't like what he says about our sexual ethics. We want to send him away. And that's what the Philistines did. And what we'll see in chapter 7, I guess next week, when God destroys the Philistine army, is that you can't actually escape the living God. He's not an idol that tips over. He is the living God. Do you remember how David reflected on this in Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Do you ever try to ignore God? I don't mean do you try to deny that he exists. 
But do you ever live like he doesn't exist? We do this whenever we're hiding secret sin. We do this whenever we ignore his word. We do this regularly. Maybe you avoid worship services as much as possible. Maybe you avoid any sort of friendship or relationship where someone might see into your life and rebuke you for sin. Maybe you avoid closeness with other Christians, or maybe you avoid getting too close. Perhaps you avoid reading certain parts of Scripture, or maybe you don't pray very much because you feel so guilty. I've done some of those things. But how, how does that work? How's it working for you? Have you ever, think back over the story of your life. Have you ever really found peace running from God? Have you ever really found even a little drop of peace trying to hide from God? There's lots of different ways that we can hide from God. I think one of the ways that's relevant to this text is I think we tend to hide from God when we forget the way that he's worked in our lives. Specifically, when we see that he's worked in our lives to get our attention, right? Maybe through some hardship, maybe through some diagnosis, and then when it's over, we just go back to normal. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Those lessons during difficulty? In verse 6, the Philistines strangely reminded each other about the lessons from the Exodus back in Egypt. Right? They said, let's not be like Pharaoh. Let's not be like the Egyptians who, uh, who, uh, who ignored God. Right? But yeah, just like the Egyptians, they didn't repent. Once the plague was over, they were just glad to get rid of the holiness. They were just glad to get rid of it. And it wasn't just the Philistines. The same was true for Israel. They too forgot the lessons of Egypt. They too forgot the lessons of Sinai. Friends, how easy is it for us to do the same thing? Have there been times when God's hand has struck you with some discipline or some difficulty And God graciously gave you new clarity of your need for him or your weakness or how satisfying his presence is or how distasteful sin really is. And then once the trial was over, you were just so glad to escape the pain that you just forget the truths that God was seeking to teach us. How many chapters of our story are like that? We must not live with our heads in the sand, pretending that God does not exist. We must acknowledge him and acknowledge his works. We must orient our lives to him in both worship and obedience. But there's another way, I think, that we try to cope with the uncomfortable God in the heavens. A second way is I think that we tend to come up with ways to deal with our guilt. Maybe a more technical way to describe it is we craft our own methods for atonement. And that's exactly what the Philistines did. They didn't know how to be right with God, right? They knew something was wrong. They saw some sort of consequences. And so they tried to sort it out. They didn't go to the Israelite priests and ask. Instead, they made up their own way. And it was close, right? There's some things about it to commend. There were some ways they were on the right track, right? They knew that they had offended a holy God. They knew that a sacrifice on some degree was required to appease him. They knew to give him glory. But close enough doesn't work when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. Instead, they consulted with their pagan priests and they made golden tumors and golden mice. Now, this is obviously a costly sacrifice, 
But don't we know that there's no amount of gold that is sufficient to pay the price for sin? Saving grace, freedom from guilt only comes from consulting the word of the Lord. The question of how is man made right with God? Who can stand before a holy God? That's what the whole Bible answers for us. Now, we've probably never made a golden tumor, right? I'm, I hope, if you have, call Mark for counseling, right? You know, we've probably never made a golden tumor to get rid of our guilt. But I think we're still tempted to craft ways, to imagine ways to deal with our guilt apart from God. We, you see this all the time. People, we struggle with guilt. We feel guilty. We may try to atone for our sin in different ways. As religious folks, we may, be, we may try to be good enough. If we can comfort ourselves by keeping enough rules, then we'll feel better about our guilt problem. Or maybe by coming to church, right? Or maybe by being baptized, or maybe even by saying the sinner's prayer. This was not just an Old Testament problem. This is the problem the Galatian church had, right? They thought if we can just add a little bit of law-keeping to the gospel, then it'll be more comfortable and feels more under our control. Or maybe we try to rationalize our way out of sin. We say, you know, I can't just, I just can't help it. That's just who I am. Or that's who my parents raised me to be. Or, you know, if you only hadn't made me so angry, I wouldn't have lost it. Or, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. You see, we have to be careful to pay attention to how we deal with our guilt. Even as Christians, because... There's only one way to be made right with God. There's only one cure for the problem of sin. Only one solution for guilt. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's consider one more way that mankind incorrectly tries to cope with the living God. And it's what we have discussed in the past is that we presume upon his grace. We presume upon his kindness. Now, we addressed this back in chapter 4 when we saw how Israel was trying to use the ark as, you know, the lucky rabbit's foot, right? Remember the rabbit foot theology? But it seems that they still haven't learned their lesson. In verses 14 and 15, we, we, we read that when Israel realized that the ark was coming back, the text says that they rejoiced to see it. They were, they were happy, but that's about the only thing they did correctly, right? They made three major mistakes. We won't go into detail on all of them. But we read in verse 15 that the Levites took down the ark. And then in verse 18, they set the ark up on a large stone like it was a spectacle, like, a, like an attraction. And then the big one in verse 19, they looked upon or looked perhaps into the ark. Now all of these were sinful mistakes, But it seems like, or it is, that the most serious one was the last one, that some of the men looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now back in Numbers, we learn that the Lord made it clear that only priests were allowed to see the exterior of the ark. And that no one, not even the the main priest, no one was allowed to even for a moment look into the ark. And if they do, they will die instantly. Death. This was a rule that was a sharp reminder of the utter holiness of God as represented by the ark. And though the Levites in Beth Shemesh were excited to see the ark, they forgot something very important. They forgot to obey. 
They forgot to obey, and God struck 70 of them dead for their sin. And as a result, the ark was sent away again, this time to the town of Kiriath-Jerim, where it remained, we read in chapter 7, for 20 years. Now, one important thing to notice is that this town, this town where the ark was sent, it was in Israel, but it was a Gentile town. It was a Gentile town. It was, it, was, uh, it was a town that was one of the cities of the Gibeonites. Do you remember the Gibeonites? How, how good are you at uh, your history of Israel, right? The Gibeonites were the ones who, uh, who tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them for their safety. During the conquest, they tricked him. And so they were able to dwell among God's people with safety. So, okay, so think about what that means. Do you see what what God is doing? Back in chapter 4, because of sin, the glory of God left Israel. And then here, when the ark comes back to Israel, because of sin, the ark of God is placed into the care of Gentiles in Israel until Israel would finally turn and seek the Lord. There is such rich and sobering application for us here. Just quickly, let's just think about a few of these for a moment. We are reminded once again that our God will not be made into a spectacle. Church, we must be so careful about using him for our own, for our own agendas. We must adopt his agenda. He is not a trinket to be toyed with. He is not a tourist attraction. We don't get to handle him any way we please. If you approach God, you must approach God on his terms. But we also see that that God is not interested in praise without obedience. God is not interested in your lip service without obedience. The Israelites, we read, they received the ark with joy but not with obedience. Even though they sacrificed two cows, just think about this, they sacrificed cows in reminding themselves of sin and they're reminded that God values obedience above all else. They sacrificed two cows and then they disobeyed and what happened? God struck them dead. We're reminded as we will read in 1 Samuel 15 later that to obey is what? It's better. It's better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. Friends, we must remember, we must remember that to stand in the presence of God, we must have clean hands. We must obey. So I would encourage you just to be thinking, are there any areas of your life that you're walking in disobedience? We all have our sin struggles, but are there areas of your life that you're walking in consistent disobedience? Are there any patterns of sin that you have, that have been built into the routine of your life? Are there any sins you've gotten used to? Have you grown to just live with your pride? Are you just used to your anger or do you overlook your selfishness? This text reminds us, church, That if we wish to fellowship with God, we must walk in obedience. But there's, I think, another application for us here, and that's the presence of a sacrifice doesn't lessen the danger of sin. The presence of a sacrifice doesn't lessen the danger of sin. That's what I was referring to just a moment ago, that one of the things that struck me about this text is not only are these God's people, but they were, and not only are they Levites, right, the priests, 
But they were actually making a guilt offering. They were acknowledging sin, and God killed them anyways. Right? The, the blood was there as a reminder of their need for God, and God killed them anyways. Friends, for those of us who are in Christ, we know that there is for us a sacrifice for sin. There is for us a sacrifice of sin. But sacrifice does not lessen the danger of sin. It should actually remind us of the danger of sin. Oh, that we would be a people who fear sin and tremble at the word of God. But we're still left with this question from verse 20. Who can stand before this God? Idols can't. Idolaters can't. Those who disobey can't. So where does that leave us? How do we deal with the problem of the wrath of God? We can't just ignore it. We can't send him away or escape it. We can't do enough good things to make up for it. We can't atone for it ourselves, right? So what do we do? Well, thankfully, we know what the Philistines didn't know. And we even know more than the Israelites knew. The only way to stand in God's holy presence is to be cleansed from our sin and freed from God's wrath. Now I pray, if, if you knew the answer, you probably knew the answer, I pray that that's not boring to you. I pray that that excites your heart, that you can sing with the church, grace, grace, marvelous grace, that's my story, that's my song, because I sin and I need grace, right? This is the answer. And just as the ark for the Israelites was a reminder of the awesome wrath of God, the ark was also a reminder of the awesome mercy of God. You remember what was inside the ark? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which were a very physical, very present reminder of God's standard. It was the law. What we read in the New Testament, the curse of the law. It's a reminder of what God requires for mankind. And since all of us have broken God's law in numerous ways... The Ten Commandments are, in a sense, in a very real sense, the source of God's wrath towards us. The Ark was not just the Ten Commandments, though, because it was covered with a lid, a golden cover known as the mercy seat. And on it, the blood of a sacrificed animal was sprinkled for the people. And what would happen in the sacrificial system was that God would transfer. He would transfer his anger that he has towards sin, and it's good anger, his wrath. He would transfer it away from the sin of the people to the animal, represented by the blood, and it represented its death. And so, it's a reminder of God's mercy. And so, when you see the ark... You see a picture of God's law and his severity, and you see a picture of God's grace. But the ark is an incomplete picture, isn't it? The ark is an incomplete picture, and we have the complete picture. Do you remember Romans 3.25, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is how sinners can stand in the presence of God. The text goes on to say that this was to show God's righteousness because, of his, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That word there, propitiation, it's a precious word for us. 
propitiation. It, it refers to the satisfaction of God's wrath. The appeasement. The satisfaction of God's wrath. And just as God's wrath was temporarily satisfied through the sacrifice of a lamb in the Old Testament, so now the wrath of God has been permanently satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, for those who place their faith in Him. I have real sins in my life that need this grace. And I know you do too. So as, as we conclude tonight, as, as we close our service together, I'd like to close briefly with a time of guided prayer and response. So let me just invite each of you to bow your head and, 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 and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us to our hearts. There's not going to be any music. There's, no, there's, there's nothing fancy here. I just, I, w- I want to remind you that, you know, God's Word always demands a response. We'll leave here tonight with either hearts that are softer or hearts that are harder. And tonight we've heard God's Word read. We've heard it explained. So as you pray... Would you ask God to show you what does obedience look like in your life in light of this text? How do you need to adjust your view of God? Are there any things about him that you believe that are wrong? Or are your beliefs of him imbalanced? What have you seen tonight that causes you to worship him? Are there any ways in your life, Christian, where you're trying to ignore God or trying to hide from Him? Are there any parts of His Word that you're hiding from? Any sins that you're avoiding? Christian, are there any sins that have, in recent weeks or recent years, any sins that have snuck up on you that you need to address? Are there any sins in your life that you committed today that you need to address? Any sins that you perhaps aren't taking very seriously, but are learning to live with. Christian, are there any ways that you've presumed upon God's grace and taken His law or His cross lightly? Are there any ways you've neglected to obey God? If God's Spirit has revealed any, th- any of these things to you, then it is an act of His mercy and His kindness. It's evidence that you're a child of God. And so, friends, let me close by reminding you It doesn't end here. Remember the mercy seat. Remember and consider the gospel. You don't have to run from God, sinner, but you can run to Christ. So rejoice in grace. Rejoice in glory in the cross. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that the Lamb of God was slain on our behalf. Make us a people who hate sin, But as we still struggle, make us a people who love grace. Would the story for our lives be that where sin increased, grace abounded more. Thank you, Father, for your Son. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.